Good morning. Good morning. And I see a lot of visitors here today. If you're a visitor, raise your hand, please. Look at all the visitors we have here today. And, and I see some visitors right over here, too. Didn't raise their hand. Okay. All righty. So um, I know we have a visitor from Texas, visitor from Singapore. And any, where, where else is everybody from? Visitor. Just shout it out. Palm Springs. Any from Chattanooga? Long way? Okay. Visitor from Chattanooga. Anybody else want to shout out where they're from? Well, welcome to our visitors. We're happy that you're here with us today. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that you will join us with your spirit, your presence, enlighten our minds, fill our hearts with your love, and may we draw closer to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number two in the quarterly, Revival and Reformation. And the title this week is Prayer, the Heartbeat of Revival. And the memory text is found in Matthew 7.11. We've all heard it, but let's, let's read it together. It says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? When you hear this, and this is, of course, Christ's word speaking, when you hear this description from Christ about the relationship with the Father to us, wanting to give good things to ask us, what do you hear? What is, what is being said about God in this text? His character is love, she said. Other thoughts as you read this text? He has good will towards us. Uh, I like that. He, his orientation, his heart attitude toward us is for us. And it says, reminds me of Romans eight thirty one. If God is for us, who can be against us? How many times have you had ideas presented that made you kind of apprehensive, uncertain? Is God really for me, or does he need convincing to be for me? But Christ is very clear. Hey, if you, being evil, know how to do good stuff for your kids, how much more? Our Father in Heaven to do good for us. So having that confidence that when you approach him, he's already on your side. Have you had that consistently throughout your life? Always knowing he's always on your side. I, I didn't, I would tell you. There's many years I didn't have that peace and certainty in my life that God was on my side. I knew that Jesus was. I always knew Jesus was on my side. But I wasn't always certain whether the Father was. If, if I didn't do, if I didn't get the lights turned off or, the, or things you know, just right, was he still on my side? Yes. But was it really until I became a parent that I understood because I know there's nothing in the world that my children could do? that I would not be on their side. I may not like what they do, but it doesn't change my feelings towards my kids. And that has brought me to a better understanding of God's love than anything else I could possibly imagine. I think that's well said. And those who are parents in the room probably can resonate with that. Even when your kids rebel, your heart is still for them. Even if you take action of discipline, discipling, teaching uh, to help them, you're, you're always doing it for their good, not against them. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, does God do good for us only when we ask? Or does God use his resources, resources to do good for us even if we don't ask? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the sun shines on the just and the unjust. The, 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 she quoted, the, the sun shines on the just and the unjust. Yes. And of course, was Christ given to the human race? Mm-hmm. For God so loved the world, he gave his only. Did we ask for that? Or was that done without our asking? Now, while we were yet sinners, yes. So what is the purpose then of asking? If he's already for us, if he's doing good for us without asking, what's the purpose of asking? It's for us. It's for us, but what purpose? It's for us. To open 
open up our hearts to see his working in our life. If we don't acknowledge we need something and ask him to show us his will and show us his favorite situations, then also we won't look for his responses either. Okay, so one, to, to recognize our need, to acknowledge our need, which implicitly says, well, we can't do it for ourselves. We need a power higher than ourselves to restore us to sanity. I've heard that somewhere. Yes, right here. Uh, there's a great controversy going on, too. And someone might cry, unfair, unfair. And we can ask God, and that gives him greater opportunity. So, so the, the idea of the controversy between powerful foes or controversy between lies and truth? Yes, and so the the asking, how does God operate? Does God have the power to do the power to do whatever He wants? But why doesn't He do whatever He wants? Because there's another principle at work. What's that principle? Freedom, Freedom, which is required for what to exist? Love Love to exist. God actually respects your individuality. He expect respects your ability to think and make decisions in governance of yourself and choose the course you would go as a free sentient being. He doesn't have to respect it. He, that's his nature. He, he, he does do it. In other words, he has the power to override it if he wanted, but he wouldn't. Because to override it would destroy your individuality, make you a robot, make you a puppet, make you a mindless cyborg, and he won't do it. And so the asking is, in a certain way, Giving him the keys. You know, it says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in. God wants a relationship with us. And real relationships are never one-sided. That's right. You can't... In fact, we're going to get to that in just a second on prayer. But can you have a, a, a relationship with an inanimate object? No. Can you have a relationship with a chair? No. With a couch? A, a relationship. A pet rock. Remember the pet rocks? These aren't, these aren't relationships, are they? Or a really nice car. So our asking, though, is, is an opening into and entering into relationship because we are free beings and God respects our individuality. Um, it reminds us that God provides things for us we can't provide for ourselves. So it keeps us humble. It, it, under, it undermines our tendency towards pride to, to ask. Um, reminds us that gifts are gifts. And not rights. Well, it's mine, I have a right to it. Reminds us it's a gift, which instills thankfulness into our hearts when we ask, hopefully. And our uh, ask, asking gives God permission to work into our lives because he's not going to knock the door of our hearts down and force his way in. He's not going to use coercion. First paragraph says, God moves powerfully as his people pray. Alfred Lloyd Tennyson uh, was certainly correct when he said, more things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. The great revivals throughout scripture were bathed in prayer. The Old Testament records the intercession of the patriarchs and prophets as they sought for revival. Moses, David, Daniel petitioned the Almighty for power. The book of Acts reveals New Testament believers on their knees storming heaven, seeking the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If people don't pray, does God move less powerfully? Yes. I heard no's and I heard yes. See, these are questions that worthy contemplation. But I think it depends on the situation. Does maybe let's turn it the question a different way. 
Does God need people's prayers in order to move powerfully? No. Not in the grander scheme of things to work out his ultimate ends in the great controversy. He doesn't need our prayers. But in our individual lives, if we don't commune with him, if we don't converse with him, if we don't open the heart to him, then we limit his ability to work in us, for us, and through us. So as individual beings, we are less transformed, useful, and helpful in his cause. So yes, our prayers are necessary, I think, for our individual, for sure. Would you all agree with that? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I heard one time they said if you pray, you could convert a drug den into a church, just like one person praying. Interesting. We'll have to think about that. Did you all hear what she said? If one person prays, they could convert a drug den into a church. If they're praying in the drug den. If they're praying in the drug den. Hmm. For that individual, that is maybe his church, but those around him may not be worshiping the same God. Yeah. I was, uh, so, so can we the question, what is prayer? <clears throat> Communication. The key that opens heaven's storehouse. Any other comments on what is prayer? Talking with God as a friend. Talking with God as a friend. I like that, yes. And that was what she was going to say. Well, this is out of a, a book, Faith I Live By, and I think you may, some of you may have read it. It says, if we keep the Lord ever before us, allowing our hearts to go out in thanksgiving and praise to him, we shall have a continual freshness in our religious life. Our prayers will take the form of a conversation with God as we would talk with a friend. He will speak his mysteries to us personally. Often there will come to us a sweet, joyful sense of the presence of Jesus. Now, keep that in mind as we go through some things. Yesterday, a friend gave me a devotional book by Sarah Young entitled Jesus Calling. Has anybody seen, read, or looked at this book? One person. Jesus Calling. In this book, um, this uh, author describes her journey and experience coming to Christ, and she describes pr- moments where she experienced the sweet presence of Jesus. And she talks as her, her, her time with the Lord evolved and she grew over time, that she came to the point where she stopped having a one-way communication, just talking to the Lord. She started waiting on the Lord and being quiet. Be still and know and listening. And the Lord began to speak to her, his sweet mysteries. And this, this daily devotional book is what she has written down through the years of the, of the communication that she's heard from the Lord and referenced with scriptures. And uh, this is uh, for today, June 29. It's, and, and it's written in the first person, so the I and the me are Jesus speaking. As you get out of bed in the morning... Be aware of my presence with you. You may not be thinking clearly yet, but I am. Your early morning thoughts tend to be anxious ones until you get connected with me. Invite me into your thoughts by whispering my name. Suddenly your day brightens and feels more user-friendly. You cannot dread a day that is vibrant with my presence. You gain confidence through knowing that I am with you, that you face nothing alone. Anxiety stems from asking the wrong question. If such and such happens, can I handle it? The true question is not whether you can cope with whatever happens, but whether you and I together can handle anything that occurs. 
It is this you and I together factor that gives you confidence to face the day cheerfully. And then she gives Psalms 5, 3, Psalm 63, 1, and Philippians 4, 13. It's an interesting, as I presented the idea to you, were you comfortable, would you get a little uncomfortable with this idea of, of people having communication from the Lord in their meditations? I'm a little uncomfortable with the book because I'm not certain that uh, her thoughts spoken in the first person from God are what God would have said. Yeah, and, and, and I, like, I like what he's doing. You see, what he's doing is he's saying, I'm not accepting this. And of course, in her preface, she says that this is not Scripture. The Scripture is only an errant word of, of Christ, and that everything she has, has said wouldn't be compared with Scripture and must conform and be harmonious with Scripture. She says that in the preface. So this is no way trying to be a, a new prophetic book or claiming the gift of prophecy. She's really describing what I think was in this faith I live by. Our prayers take the form of, commu- of conversations with God as as we talk to a friend, he speaks his mysteries to us personally. And this is really a, a expression of a person's single journey that each one of us should not take as a gospel message, but take as someone's testimony and experience and think it through for ourselves. Absolutely. Well said, Wendell. Do you like the idea, though, that you could experience God speaking his mysteries to you personally? Has anyone had that experience mm-hmm. in prayer and contemplation where they've had the impression of God really speaking to their heart? Oh. Not through their ears necessarily, but to their mind. But what it says to me is that this person is so comfortable talking to God like this. You know, we always think of prayers on our knees with our eyes closed or in a closet and prayer and stuff like that. Or it's, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for... This person has gotten on a personal level with Jesus to the point that I'm so comfortable with him that he really is my friend. And I can talk to him just like I would a friend in the morning. Like, man, I hate getting up this morning. I'd rather sleep in. I'm tired. You know, but God's saying, well, turn it over to me. You know, I'll take over for you. Just let me. It's very personable to me. And it makes me think that this person really has that relationship with Jesus that I would like to have. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's the goal for all of us to grow daily. where We walk that journey I'm partaking each day of Christ, absolutely. Well, I was familiar with this idea and this quotation that prayer to God can take the form of conversation with a friend, so I got very interested when I read an article entitled, Praying to God is Like Talking to a Friend. In in the article, it cited recent brain research by Ufi um, Schott, uh, who examined with MRI scans, uh, functional brain scans, looking at activation at real time, of 20 Christians while they prayed. And the researcher said, quote, it's like talking to another human. We found no evidence of anything mystical. Let me continue. Interesting, though, the, area, the areas that lit up that were similar to talking to a friend only happened with improvised prayer. In other words, spontaneous prayer. When people recited the Lord's Prayer, the same areas lit up as when reciting nursery rhymes, which are areas associated with rehearsal, Repetition and recall. In other words, reciting memorized prayers are not the same as talking with a friend. Memorized prayer is done from rote and the heart is not in it. And such prayer won't bring about the transformational experience. It's basically fake and brain scans can tell the difference. Isn't that interesting? But when individuals prayed spontaneously, they activated the same brain regions, which activate when we are aware of another person, another intelligent being, activating circuitry that is linked with the theory of mind, if you know what that means, this awareness of other sentience uh, and awareness that other individuals have their own independent motivations and intentions. 
So you're aware of another person. You're anticipating response. You're contemplating how they might feel. All these elements come in when you're actually praying to God spontaneously. These areas, uh, the areas process a desire and contemplate how the other might react and uh, to the expressed desire, as well as the prefrontal cortex, which anticipates what the other person might do. Memory areas are activated from previous encounters, filling in contextual uh, elements to the uh, prayer experience. In other words, it's an entire relational interaction when one prays spontaneously. As a comparator, the, the uh, authors also had people make a wish list for Santa, for Santa Claus. But in this task, the prefrontal cortex did not activate. So the region of the brain that interacts with another was not involved. So thus the individuals viewed Santa as fictional, but the people praying viewed God as a real individual. This is how the brain was responding. Further, the prefrontal cortex doesn't activate when people in- interact with inanimate objects, such as a computer, because the brain doesn't expect reciprocity and, or to have a need to think about what the computer wants or needs. So there's a whole element of relational activation. You're anticipating God, his attitude, his feelings, what he would like, what he would want of you. All these elements come in when you deal in a relationship, but not with a computer, not with inanimate objects. So back to the quote that we read earlier out of Faith I Live By with this research in mind. If we keep the Lord ever before us, allowing our hearts to go out in thanksgiving and praise to him, we shall have a continual freshness in the religious life our prayers will take the form of conversation with God as we would talk with a friend. But notice that only happens when we keep him before us and allow our hearts to go out to him. You see? It's the spontaneous heart-motivated prayer that was described here, and the brain research says that's true. It doesn't say that if you recite a memorized prayer, an incantation, so to speak, uh, over and over again, have your prayer wheel that you spin, your pray, prayer beads that you go up and down, you don't get any of this good blessing stuff with your brain. It has to have that heart going out with it. Isn't it interesting? Brain science is actually confirming that. Yeah. Yes. Doesn't it also matter what, what God you're praying to? I mean, yeah. you're praying to a cosmic vending machine or versus a God of love, uh, your conversation is going to be different. You know, Lord, protect me from your wrath versus, Lord, please don't let me go. Yes. Um, yes, there's another research article I'm going to get to in just a second. It's going to actually give some, some insight into that element. But you're exactly right. The God we pray to makes a huge difference because we become like, but you can have relationship. Can you have a relationship with a kind, beneficent human being? Can you have a relationship with a dictator who is selfish and arrogant and, and mean-spirited? You can have a relationship with both. And you will react differently to both of those beings. So likewise, you can have a relationship in prayer with a God that you love and trust or a God that you're terrified of. So yes, you can have it either way. And it will, it will change you in different directions. Yes? There's a doctor in Minnesota, a Jewish doctor, that um, records the heartbeat. And it's, he discovered that when Sabbath comes, sunset, your heartbeat slows down all the way till the end of Sabbath. All the way to the so. Like the point that yeah, I haven't heard this study. I would I would be interested to see it. Only for people who believe in the Sabbath or people who don't also. For everyone. Really, I would be interested to see that study. I, I'm a skeptic. I will just tell you, I, I find that very skeptical because I'm wondering about the about the woman whose husband's beating her on on Sabbath if her heart rate is slowing down and feeling more relaxed. I'm wondering about the person whose uh, whose spouse just got deployed to Iraq and he's going into a combat zone if her heart is slowing down on Sabbath. 
the, I, I, I'm just very skeptical of that study because there's so many variables there. So I, I'm not saying it's not true, but I would have to see the study. I just have in my mind, there's a thousand different variables running through my mind, knowing how what we think and what we believe holds power over us. And how about the person who comes to the Sabbath fearful that they didn't get their chores done in the house clean properly before Sabbath is over and that God will punish them because they were two minutes late in turning the TV off? Will their heart rate slow down? I think if you get with the program, it does. Yeah, get with the program. <laughs> you mean get that get everything turned off in time? Then it does. Okay. <laughs> I'm just, it's interesting. I would like to look at it. Um, but what if we bow five times a day, going through our regimented ritualistic prayer to tick off one's religious duty fulfilled? Then what? Well, we don't get that relational brain change, that positive stuff going on. Studies show that religiosity actually is a predictor of abuse against one's family. So the more religious, ritualistic behavior you do from rote makes you more rigid and less compassionate. It doesn't actually transform you to be a being of love. So does prayer make a difference? Well, in the aftermath of September 11, 2001, the terrorist attack, University of Michigan scientists evaluated the impact of prayer in coping with trauma and discovered that students who prayed in the aftermath of the trauma had better psychological adjustment one year later than those who did not pray at all. But these same researchers also evaluated Muslims, refugees from Kosovo and Bosnia, and found that many of them also prayed to cope with the stress, 60% of whom had PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, from the war experiences. What was interesting is they found that 77% of these refugees had negative prayer forms, meaning that they prayed that their enemies would pay for what they have done. They prayed for vengeance. What they found was that positive prayer from the refugees and prayer practices were related to high levels of optimism, hope, and healthy adjustment. But justice-seeking, anger-related religious practices that sought vengeance were related to reduced levels of optimism, hope, and healthy adjustment. Isn't that interesting? So prayer, what do you all think of this idea? We pray to God to make our enemies suffer. (laughs) What happens if we do that? Well, according to this study, it actually undermines your health, your welfare, your adjustment, your peace. gets undermined when you have those kind of prayers. Does that surprise anyone? What circuits of the brain would you guess as non-neuroscientists would fire when we focus on revenge and hurting others? Love circuits? Yeah, limbic system, fear circuits. But love circuits are not firing then. And so that results in us having higher love. See, when, you're, when you think about hurting another, you automatically, your brain can't help but put on its own fear and apprehensions and fears of reprisal. We fear a counterattack. We fear that we might be hurt. We're in a conflict and we put our defenses up and our, and our amygdala start firing. And we get much more inflammatory cascades and it eats at us on the inside and we don't have as much peace and we can't rest and we're in turmoil all the time. This doesn't have to be a war conflict. This could be somebody at school or church who said something bad about us and we just ruminate about how we just want them to be humiliated and we want them to be embarrassed and we want them to lose their job and we want that pastor to get fired and we want that you, you see what i'm saying and we go down that line of 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 ruminating in negative ways it eats at us and damages our health and welfare I thought it was fascinating research i've got the journal references in the notes for those who would like to go look at the primary research 
So what does prayer do for those who pray? It changes them. The question is, what's the question? Which direction does it change them, right? Prayer changes those who pray. How is it changing them? Is it making them more mindless and thoughtless because they're doing repetitious, rote, memorized prayer that they never think about? Is it making them more compassionate and Christ-like because they're spending time in the presence of God, opening their heart to Him, seeking for a heart of grace and love and forgiveness and compassion? Is it making them more revengeful and hostile because they're praying for suffering and pain and hurt on those they hate? Prayer changes those who pray. What does prayer then do for slash to God? Doesn't change him. I heard somebody, good for you. Doesn't change him. But wait, are there any examples of people praying to God and he changes his mind, his decision? Yes, interesting, isn't it? How about, uh, this is one I always love to ask, and most of you already heard it, so you, you won't fall into my, my little trap, okay? Does God ever give us things he doesn't want us to have, use his power to help us do things he doesn't want us to do if we pray for it long enough? Yes. Yes, did God want them to eat meat in the desert? Did he? No. No, he was sending them manna every day. He counseled against it. Who brought the quail? Pardon? Yeah. Did he want them to have kings? Who picked their first two? God picked their first two. Uh, uh, so th- there's a lesson here. Is what's, what's the lesson here regarding praying to God? I'm, I'm here mumbling. What's the lesson? Possibly. <laughs> I, I would say, be, not, 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 not what you remember, be, be careful how you ask for it. See, I, what, what I think the element was missing was, they, they, see, I don't think there was anything wrong with going to God and saying, man, Lord, I miss those flesh pots of Egypt. I'm sorry, but they that tasted good. Liked it. But search me and see if there's a wicked way in me, Lord. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. If it's not the best way, help me overcome that in my life. But boy, I sure would like some right now. <laughs> I don't think there's a problem telling God the truth of what you're desiring and on your heart, as long as at the end you say, but Father, my will may not be the best will. You may have a better way, and I'm willing to trust you to lead me into that better way, rather than closing it off and just demanding, hey, if you don't give me what I want, I'm not talking to you anymore. <laughs> you don't give me that flesh pot, then forget it. It's over. I think, I think it's not wrong asking as long as we submit to his overruling and transforming and changing and leading us to a better way if it's not the best way. Does that sound reasonable? Or? Yeah, and I think if you look at those, those the, the children of Israel insisted. They were counseled. Samuel came to them about the kings and, and begged them and, and educated them and told them all the problems that were going to happen. Please don't, please don't, please don't. But they insisted. They were not willing to say, well, I, we, we'd really like kings, but Lord, if it's not the best, we'll trust you. You lead us in the best way. They weren't willing to take that attitude, were they? So rather than lose the relationship. Parents, I've heard some parents talk about how they learn things about God's experience as parents. Have you ever had a situation with a child where you, you let them or in, even gave them the money to do something, like go to a, a particular ball game or 
prom or whatever it was that in the circumstance you really didn't think it was the best, but you knew it would poison the relationship so badly if you didn't let them go that you were going to let them go and experience the consequence and then be there to hold them when they were hurt. Yeah, I see a lot of parents' heads nodding. Yeah, sometimes that's God. God, sometimes if we, we're hard and he, he doesn't want to lose the connection, and if, and if, that's, if that means that he lets us do something that hurts us rather than lose us totally, he'll do that to help pick up the pieces and, and teach us a lesson the hard way. I saw a hand right here. Yes. I was just going to say, um, to come to God with a, with a heart that is just not really knowing what's the best thing for, you know, to do or to go forward rather than insisting <laughs> on a certain direction, but just to ask that God would lead and that he would show you and that he would work it out according to his will and, and give you the wisdom to make good choices. Yeah, yeah. So the attitude of the prayer, it makes the big difference, isn't it? I really encourage, if you have a, a, something you're really emotionally torn up about, upset about, it's okay to go to God and be honest with it. You know, if you really hate your neighbor and want them to die, God knows you hate that neighbor and want them to die. So do like David and go and pray. Psalms 139, if you haven't read it recently. Happy is the man who takes his enemy's babies and smashes their heads on the rocks. But David also prayed, search me and see the wicked way in me. Create me a clean heart, O God. If this really isn't the best attitude, give me a better attitude. See, it's in, in that relationship with God, that reaching out to him, conversing with him, talking it over with him, that you put yourself in a position for him to give you new motives. and new. But if you hide it from him and say, well, bless the missionaries and make sure my neighbor is healthy, when you're really wishing your labor dies, you're not being honest with God. You're keeping the door to your heart closed. Several hands right here. Wendell. Wendell, right here. We're not always at the same level. And we grow and so we should always come to God, no matter if we are have the right motives and have everything else. If we come to Him, He will, he will convert us. Well said. Well said. In back, in the back, yes. Uh, Doctor James, uh, I I was blessed to have good parents. I had a good dad for twenty eight years and a good mother for fifty one years. And how did you pick them? God, God picked them for me. Okay. And I'm very grateful for that. My dad lost his mother when he was four. But I believe that God is kind and loving and patient. And I believe that he's always on the job. And I believe that he knows what he's doing. And I believe that he has our best interests at heart. But I have a friend, and I don't know how to answer this question. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Like, why, does, why did Hitler's mother not have a miscarriage? I don't, I don't know how to answer that. Well, Hitler's mother didn't have a miscarriage because she didn't do anything that would have caused a miscarriage. But yeah, that's why. She, I mean, physiologically, she didn't do anything that would cause it. She didn't eat, drink, drink any toxic poisons or any of that stuff that would have caused a miscarriage. I mean, she could have saved the world a lot of problems if she'd had a miscarriage. Yeah, I understand where you're. I understand where you're going with that. Why didn't God intervene to cause what you're really asking? I don't know how to answer that question for my friend. Yeah, we we talked about this last week, guys. Remember what was the answer we came up last week? Where does he start? Where does he end? <laughs> we, we talked about. We answered this question last week. Russell's saying, "Where does he start? Where does he end?" Satan but, could be set of Satan in heaven. Why didn't he just not create yeah. Satan? Yeah, this is the question. Why did he not create Lucifer in the beginning? Why didn't he? Because he's a God of love and freedom. Because he's a God of love and freedom. Connect the dots for us. Some of us aren't seeing the picture. Connect the dots. God of love and freedom. So why didn't he, so why didn't he freely not create Lucifer? 
<laughs> the end result would be robots. Yes, see, what kind of being would God be if he used his foreknowledge to manipulate things to always be just the way he wants them? Would he actually be a God of love that respects our individuality and freedom? Or would he be a manipulative being that only creates a pretext, a pretext, a fake environment, a facade, which is what Lucifer, Satan, accuses God of doing? That we don't have real freedom, it's all a fake. It's all pretended. You get the illusion of freedom as long as you're always doing what he wants. But if you don't do what he wants, then he acts out against you and hurts you. If God were to do these things, it would actually sustain Satan's allegations that we don't have any real freedom. Love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. It can't. He has never wanted to destroy humans' power of choice. Then he won't ever. But something does destroy our power of choice. What destroys your power of choice? Yes, back here. I want to say in church, Adolf Hitler didn't do good things because he didn't choose God to be his king. He chose Satan. So he did have to do what, you know, was in Satan's heart. Okay, so you're saying that he lost his freedom of choice because he didn't surrender his heart to, to the Lord. Yes. Yes. Um, Satan is not like God. He pushes his way in and he doesn't give you power choice. See, so Satan is not like God. He uses coercion, he uses pressure, he'll take control. Look at the demoniacs. When someone was under demonic control, did they have freedom to choose? Yes or no? When someone has the Holy Spirit take over and do everything the Holy Spirit wants, you have full access to you, you get something called the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians, and the last fruit is? Self-control. The Holy Spirit restores to you self-governance, freedom to control yourself. So notice, the only place you actually get freedom is under surrender to Christ. It restores to your ability to be in self-government. He doesn't take it. But the other side, you lose freedom. You can't control yourself anymore. You're out of control. And you can see this in people who are not even all the way over to demoniac possession. You can see the people who are in the throes of addictions. They lose self-control. Don't they? Yes. But they can be set free. Step one, we admit that we are powerless over our addiction. Our life's become unmanageable. Step two, we... We admit that a, or believe a power higher than ourselves can restore us to sanity. Only by Christ we find that freedom. And so the answer to your question is why? Because God is love. Love only exists in an atmosphere of freedom. Without freedom, it's either robotic program, computer, puppet shows, or coercive slavery. One of the two. Yes? I'm thankful that he is kind and loving and patient. I mean, I grieve when I see suffering. I don't, I don't particularly get any joy if I see a dead deer on the side of the road. That deer got hit by a car and it's dead. So it, it grieves me to see suffering. And I'm glad that God hates that too and that someday that there's going to be an end to it and there will be no more. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about prayer. Um, examples of prayer. Abraham talking with God regarding Sodom. Is this prayer? Yes. Yes. Yeah, he's talking with his friend, isn't he? In fact, uh, you know, Abraham was referred to as a friend of God. This is conversation with God as a friend, okay? So he's talking with God about the destruction of Sodom. Did God have to come and tell Abraham what was going to happen to Sodom? Why did he tell Abraham? What was the purpose? To help Abraham understand 
She says to help Abraham understand. Did God know Abraham's heart? Yes. And how Abraham would respond. So God went in, told Abraham, knowing Abraham was going to do what? So could it be this entire encounter was for Abraham's benefit to help Abraham understand, but also to disclose God's heart? So Abraham would know God had no desire to destroy Sodom. There was no inkling in God's heart for 50, for 40, for 30, for 10. Absolutely, Abraham, absolutely. And that the reason that the cities were destroyed is because they were like a cancer. There was no one there healable. They were all beyond salvation. And Christ was acting to keep open the channel for the Messiah to come, to save the human race. So it was a, a revelation of God's heart in this conversation. Yes, Russell. Uh, I think it might also have been a, a revelation to unfallen worlds as well. You know, the unfallen angels and unfallen worlds about the transformation that was going on in Abraham's character as he grew closer to God and another revelation of God's character to the angels who still have questions. And, and do we have it? With the you know, sacrifice of Isaac, this is another step in that progression. I, I agree with you completely. Give us a text that supports that idea that angels are watching. First Corinthians four nine. We are a spectacle. I knew you were going to say that. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Okay, okay. We are a spectacle, a theater to angels and to men. I mean, this is this is First Corinthians four nine. They're watching. We are a spectacle. We are a theater. They're looking in. You're exactly right. And I just want to give that Bible underpinning so people don't think you just made that up. No, this is absolutely true. Yeah, Paul in the thorn in the flesh prayer. This is um, if you, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. I want to read it to you. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that, the, that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What do you think about this prayer? He prayed. This is Paul, the apostle. What does it say in James about the prayer of a righteous man? Avails much. So we could expect Paul's healing when he prays, right? What's it tell us? Paul prays three times. He's not healed. He wasn't very right. He had a faith problem, didn't he? He was walking around with the apostles that were healing. Was have you? Heard, yeah, he actually had with those prayer things too. Those prayer claws went out, and people. Have you heard people say that if you if you're not healed, you don't have enough faith? Was that Paul's problem? So this disabuse this should disabuse people. If you have a health problem and you've prayed and you haven't been healed. Don't let that doubt. Don't let that call your faith into question. Your trust in God into question. That's a ridiculous association. Don't do it. Yes, God has the ability to heal, but like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to Nebuchadnezzar, we know our God can deliver us from fire, but even if he doesn't, we won't bow. We know God can heal, but even if he doesn't, we're going to trust him. We don't know whether we will, but we know he can. We don't know the grander purposes and schemes. We don't know who's going to be witnessed to by the, the experiences. We don't know what nurse, what doctor I may have to, uh, my witness might bring to the Lord as I go through some of these experiences. We don't know how the hand of the Lord is working in all this. We can't see it all. But Paul, yes, Wendell. Without taking the discussion away from prayer, this goes back to answering the question that was asked in the back of the room. There are multiple reasons why people suffer. 
And this is one of them. That Paul's suffering was for his own good. Okay? Other people's suffering are for multiple other reasons. There's a whole discussion that we could have on that. But there, this illustrates there's multiple reasons why bad things happen. And some of them, all of them, can be used to God's glory. But they aren't all caused by God's glory. Yes, that, I think it's well said. Okay, way in the back. Uh, I find comfort in this text. It's the last two verses of uh, Psalm 138. It says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will perfect or complete that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. That's Psalms 138, 7 and 8. Thank you. Thank you. Right up here in the front. Well said. She said faith, and this is a lot of people in my, in my practice don't, don't realize this, but she said faith is trusting God with the outcome. Most of the patients that I have that worry and are stressed and are anxious and, and, and have anxiety disorders, if you look at what they're worrying about, they're worrying about some outcome. Will I have enough money for my kid's education? Will my boyfriend break up with me? Will my husband leave me? Will, will my kids grow up to be, be uh, members of the church when they leave the church? Will, will, the, will my health, care can, health problem get resolved? It's, it's outcome-based fears, fears of the future, fears of how life is going to turn out. Rather than focusing on, and when I point them, say, God has given you responsibility for something. Can anybody in, in here tell me what, what your responsibility is? Your exactly. And you've said it in several different ways. It all means the same thing. We're responsible for the choices we make in governance of ourselves, not how things turn out. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are responsible. Bow, don't bow. That's their choice. They can't control whether they get thrown in the furnace or not. They can't control whether Christ delivers them or not. They can control whether they bow or don't bow. That's their choice. In life, when you find yourself pressured, finances are behind you, behind in your house payment, your choice is do I embezzle from my boss or not? to pay that house payment? Will I bow to the idol and embezzle? Will I cheat? Will I my taxes to get that money? Uh, no, I'm not going to bow. If I lose the house, so be it. I'm not going to bow. That's our choice. How it turns out, we might go in the furnace. But if you've read from our text last week, or read in Malachi, the, the trials of life are described as a furnace, a fire, in which the gold is refined, in which character is purified. And sometimes it's those difficulties in life that wrestle out those fears and insecurities that tempt us. And we, until we're put in the position, we don't have the solidification of character. We may say, I wouldn't bow to that idol on the plane of Dura. I, I, I would have stood there right with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's easy to say. Easy to say. I can't say until I'm in that situation. I pray that I would not bow. I know, I know, I know my mind, I would be thinking it's time to tie my shoe. <laughs> didn't bow, Lord. You know I didn't. I'm just tying my shoe. Wait, I got slip-ons. I don't know shoestrings. Yeah, I'm in trouble. But he knows your heart. Yes, he knows my heart. I'm looking for that 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 middle road, huh? How many times we look for the middle road? Yes. Okay. Yes, right here. If trials are refining us, who is the one that brings trials in our lives? Uh, is God the one that brings trials come for lots of reasons and just like just like suffering God sometimes does bring trials but so do evil people so does Satan 
You can't just say you got a trial from the Lord. It may not be. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. The Lord didn't inspire them to do that. That trial did not come from the Lord. However, it was an opportunity, and it was a clearly a maturing and faith-growing experience for Joseph as he grew over those years, trusting in God and seeing God's deliverance over and over again. It was a refining experience for him, even though it wasn't brought by God. His trust in God through the trial grew him in, in his maturity. Isaac? Jacob. Jacob, okay. Yeah. Yes, Jacob, his father. Yes. His father realized the favoritism that he showed All right, let's jump to Sunday's lesson. Um, The first paragraph reviews the rapid spread of the gospel in the first century, and then uh, first century after Christ, and asks the question, what was their secret? What was the secret that the gospel spread so rapidly, so quickly in the first century? Christ's presence before that. Christ's immediate presence, which resulted in a new perspective, enlightenment. You use the word enlightenment. Enlightenment means their minds had new ideas dawn upon them. They had new perspectives. They were enriched in their, in their understanding of what? Particularly, what was the thing that was most critical they were enlightened about? If you've seen me, you've seen... Wow, Father isn't like Baal after all? Wow, you mean we don't have to actually change for the temple coin and actually buy that sheep from them at exorbitant prices and actually have to do it through this ritual and ceremony in order for God to not kill me? You mean he loved me so much he sent his son to, to die to save me? That's God, really? It was a shift in their perspective about God. This was what it was. They came to see him. And you read the New Testament writers, the message, there's one central theme of the New Testament, it is God is that was the message. That is not the understanding the Pharisees presented about God. They did not present a God as love God. They walked by the, the Samaritan who was beaten along the side of the road. They wanted to stone the woman caught in adultery. They wanted to stone Christ for healing on the Sabbath. They, they looked down at, at, the, at the sick and the disease as being cursed of God, and they had no compassion. They did not present God as love. The New Testament presents God in his true light. God is love, and it spread. The message spread. It healed, it transformed. They saw God's nature, his character, his design protocols, his love. They, I, I think the lesson is trying to point us... The Old Testament presents that as well. The Old Testament does as well. I was, do you notice, you notice I didn't say the Old Testament. I said the Pharisees in Christ's day. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but the Old Testament does too. You're right. Yes. In Luke 24, the walk to Emmaus. Yes. After Christ discussed all this, how our hearts were burning. Yes. Yes, right here. There's basically been one thing for salvation. Trust God in how we treat our fellow human beings. The thief on the cross did not have a chance to obey, but he trusted God and he was promised salvation. Christ, as he was dying, said, Why have you forsaken me, Father? But his next day was in your hands I commit to his spirit. And that's what he's saying to us. Even though we might feel forsaken by God, we're not. If we trust, we'll have the same results of Christ. Well said. Well said. Yes, right here. I know this is not the main reason, but they were also persecuted. I mean, they all faced a common enemy, and they pulled together. She said that that persecution, they were persecuted, and they faced a common enemy. And and so what does persecution do? Drives us to God. She says it drives us to God, yes. What else does it do? It's a a filtration device. 
it's a fil- how does it filter? It filters the body of Christ in what way? People who are there for political and selfish gains, do they hang around under persecution? When it's not popular, when you're going to lose your political office, you can lose your power, your bank account's going to be taken from you, when this type of stuff happens, do you stay if you're there for political votes and political power? No. So it actually filters. People are there for, who are truly committed and true believers. But when it becomes politically convenient and popular and you can get into office and you can, you know, you've got a, a, a big constituency you need to get that elected election from and, and then, then you're going to find that joining the church can have your business can grow because you can then advertise on the local, you know, Christian station to get, to get, uh, you know, your, and, and, and put out there that you support this ministry so you can get more people coming to your business. And I mean, then you can get people in the church that have no real knowledge in relation with Christ. So I think the persecution aspect has a role to play because it makes people really evaluate why are they there? What, what does this really mean? Is this message actually vital and life-changing to me? Is it something I'm worth, is, is something I'm willing to die for? <clears throat> and the Bible says you'll purify the Levites by fire, the saints. You know, and that persecution is one of the trials that feels like fire when you're in it. So this idea, what was their secret? I think their secret was they came to know God and his true character of love, and they went out and they preached that character of love and the true gospel that was revealed in Jesus Christ. And people were convicted of the Spirit, and then they were set up in six months of indoctrinational Bible classes. And they were required to change their lifestyle and give up bad habits, and they were required to change their jobs so they could get off of work on time to come to church, and they were required to all these things, right? They weren't required to do anything other than to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior and I think stop eating strangled and blood products. That was it. And they were baptized that day. That day. Something's changed. Do we baptize? And I'm going to leave this with you. I'm, not, I'm asking a question. Do we baptize in Christianity? I'm not talking a particular denomination. But across the landscape of Christianity, do we baptize into Jesus Christ? Do we baptize into institutions? If we baptize into Jesus Christ, then why don't we do it at conversion? Because we have to indoctrinate them into the system. They have to, they have to give a test, a, 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 what's it, a testament of conviction, of belief of a certain, you know, historic writer. I accept, I accept that historic writer. I accept this. I've changed that. I've given this up. I've done that. I'm going to be loyal to this. And all these, are we baptizing into Christ? We baptize in the institutions. Maybe this is why the gospel is stagnant. I don't know. It's something to think about. Um, Monday's lesson. First paragraph says, um, Christ was continually receiving from the Father that he might communicate to us. The word which you, you hear, he said, is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. The Son of Man uh, came not to minister unto, but to minister. Not for himself, but for others he lived and thought and prayed. From hour spent with God, he came forth morning by morning to bring light of the light of heaven to men. Daily he received a fresh baptism of the Holy Spirit. In the early hours of the new day, the Lord awakened from his slumbers, and his soul and his lips were anointed with grace. What do you hear being described? There's a law being described in action, in function here. Do you see it? There's a design protocol for life being designed and being described in this paragraph. Do you all see it? Somebody tell me besides Russell. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
By beholding, we become changed for sure. There's another law at work here being described. What's being described functionally? What's it say here? It says, um, um, continually receiving that he might communicate. Um, Not for himself, but for others. The law of giving. He received in order to give. A constant circle of giving. The law of love and action. He lived it out. He gave of himself. So he received not to strengthen himself. He received to give to others, to be a conduit. This is why we are called. We are called, when you, in your prayer life, ask the Lord to give that you might give. Impart to me wisdom, knowledge, love, compassion, and then go out and seek to give that away. And the more you give, the more you will receive. This is God's design. And the more you give, the more you receive, guess what happens to you? You're transformed. Your brain will change. Your interior singular cortex will grow. Your fear circuitries will come. You will have peace. You will have confidence. You will have love. You will have security. You will have wisdom. You will grow in the knowledge of the Lord. The more you give, the more you receive from the Lord. So you seek the Lord to enable you to give blessings to others. The bottom section in the green says, spend a few moments reflecting on some specific times that God powerfully answered your prayers. And recall and reflect on these experiences of the deeper prayer life. We only have five minutes left in class. Um, does anybody want to share an answered prayer? I can tell you this class right here is an answer to prayer. When Christy and I came to this area, we searched the region for a class, a church, a group that presented God in this way. And you know how many we found? Zero. So we prayed and asked God if it's his will that we would start a class. And we started that class, was it 2004, 2006? I think it was four, wasn't it? 2004, nine years ago. Nine years ago. And it has just grown and grown and grown and grown. And, and God is just blessed. And, and this message is just growing. That you guys... And the people around the world, we have, we have groups that, that, that present this message all over the country, all over the world. Singapore, we have friends in Singapore present this. Germany, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, England, Japan. We have people sharing this. It's growing. This is an answer to prayer. Keep praying because uh, I really believe that this is a message. When the gospel of the kingdom is preached to the entire world as a witness to all nations, the gospel of the kingdom of love. It's not the gospel of the kingdom of Rome. And that's the gospel that, his, it, that historic Christianity has taken to the world. A God who's like a Roman emperor, who governs the universe like, like Nero governed Rome. That's what's presented, that he, he imposes laws and, and must sit over to impose punishments, and he's the author of, of suffering and death who must inflict torture upon the wicked in the end. That's the gospel that's gone to the world. That's why the end hasn't come. He's waiting for the true gospel, that God's the builder, the designer, the one who loves you so much he gave his life to put us back in harmony with the way he built things to go to the world. Tuesday's lesson, Matthew 18 and 19, and I I tell you more, whenever two of you on earth agree about anything, pray for it, and it will be done by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, I am there with them. And then the lesson says the promise is made on condition of that united prayers of God's people are offered and in answer to these prayers there may be expected a power greater than that which comes in answer to private prayer. 
The power given will be proportional to the unity of, of the members and their love for God and for one another. That is out of something called the Central Advance, February 25, 1903. The Bible text was um, Matthew 18, 19, and 20. So what do you think about this idea of praying together in unity, two or more gathered praying, that we get more power from the Lord than if we just pray by ourselves? Well, let me, leave. I meant to get this before the last minute or two of class, but let me ask you. Is there something that you would like this class to pray for together? I think we need to pray that we have the courage to share this truth without apology, without without uh, malice towards anyone, and that we interpret it in terms of real healing for people who are deceived and who need who need help. Are you all willing? Do you all agree that that with that prayer? Would you like us to pray that prayer together? Well, let's, let's pray that prayer together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come together, a group of people who love this perspective of you, love your characters revealed in Jesus, love the fact that you are for us and not against us, love the way your universe runs and the principles of, of giving and beneficence and truth and freedom. Lord, we come to you now because we are asking for the outpouring of your Spirit to empower us, to purify our hearts first, to cleanse us to be like you, to enable us to communicate a message about your kingdom that is effective and that will free hearts and minds that have been held for, in bondage of distortion of, of the old mythos that has is, that is, that is pervaded the world. I pray for the, the members of this class, and I pray for those members that are not here but, but join us through the Internet and around the world. And I pray that you will open avenues of communication, give us new insights and wisdom, empower us with peace, with compassion, with skill, uh, that we might uh, be effective in our community and, and, and our circle of influence, and that hearts and minds we turn to you, that the world will be lighted and you might come, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. I don't even know if we should just end on that. I've got some really interesting things in the notes. I encourage you to look at them. Um, there's an interesting quote uh, from, a, from a, a daily devotional of the day with God uh, in uh, Wednesday's lesson that I've highlighted and marked. I think you'll find it interesting if you look at it. But we had a couple of announcements to make. Um, Michael, why don't you make your way up here? We, as a class, have sponsored a bakery in Uruguay, and Michael's headed up that bakery. It's a bakery for Christian young people who would like to be able to support to get a Christian education. Tell us about what's going on with that. Now, this is also a little background. The Uruguay Adventist Academy is a well-known and well-respected institution in Uruguay, and the, most of the student body is not Adventists that go there, so it, that's a great witness and testimony to the school. But on the other hand, it also is a school where hardly any Adventists go. And, and one of the reasons is that the Adventist kids can't afford to, to attend. So the school contacted me a couple years ago requesting that perhaps we can set up a bakery there and employ the kids to work there in the bakery so they can afford to go to the school. So we've been working on this for two or three years, well, for three years anyway, two years anyway, getting it together. We've refurbed the building pretty well completely. We've also purchased most all the equipment, or, and we've got most of it set up, but we've been held up for about a year just getting the permits that we needed to finish the bakery. Well, last week, uh, we got the permit we were looking for. 
So yesterday I purchased a ticket to fly back down in the 21st of July. Also last month I was through Rusty McKee, I was able to secure a family, a baker and his wife, who will move there and manage the bakery. Bilingual. Bilingual. Yeah. Just a great Christian couple. I just love them dearly. Um, I flew out to Ensenada about a month ago, interviewed them, and spent time in their home. And uh, so Enrique Perez, the, the new baker, he'll, he will be joining me when we fly down, and he will stay there after I leave, and he'll continue to finish up all the little details of the bakery. Yeah, there's a lot of things we didn't do that we couldn't do because we didn't have a permit. Uh, like the electricity, we couldn't get it hooked up until we got a permit. Also, we didn't want the electricity hooked up beforehand because there's a minimum charge of, of several hundred dollars a month, no matter if you use it or not. And so we didn't want that hooked up before. Uh, the water uh, needs to be hooked up as well. And then we've, uh, in the meantime, we did have the water line run to the bakery. It just needs to be brought inside. What's your projected production start line date? Uh, we're hoping within um, 60 to 90 days to be able to start baking. And what kind of things will they produce? We're going to make whole grain breads there. And in Uruguay, uh, they're European folks. They eat a lot of bread. Bread is a big deal there. They're not eating tortillas there. These are, these are Europeans. And they eat baguettes. This is white bread baguettes. This is a big deal there. This is what they eat. You know, morning, noon, and night, lots and lots of baguettes. Now, the country is expanding, is doing well. There's a lot of construction. A lot of, a lot of people are getting better off economically during the last few years. So we feel now's a good time to introduce a, a good whole grain bread. I've got one of the largest bakeries in Uruguay agreeing to bring our bread into their distribution. They're all excited about it. And also, I've got another uh, health food distributor, the largest one in the country, He's also wanting to distribute the bread. So I think the sales will work out fairly well. I tried to pin down Panifique, the, the company who will be bringing our bread in for them to distribute, to pin them down and say, well, how much do you need? How much bread do you think you'll want? And he said, oh, well, we'll just take all you can make. <laughs> so, Any questions for, for Michael? Obviously, there's salary involved for this gentleman to go down and whatnot. And... Uh, we talked about the times past, kind of where they, they were on the budget and whatnot, etc. They kind of give an update. Of okay. Um, right. To, to finish up the bakery, we need about $40,000. And we've already had how much donated? About $490,000 so far to get the bakery where it is today. And we're $40,000 to remain. And we need $40,000 to finish up. If anybody feels like they can help out, we would be very grateful. If you want to do that, you can donate it just... To come and reason, indicate it for the Uruguay Bakery pro- Project, and all that 100% of your donation will go to the project. So uh, thank you for your support, and appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all.